everybody, and welcome to episode 22 of the podcast, History Does You. Today, we'll be talking about the Marshall Plan, and we had an interview with Dr. Ben Style, who was a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. I think this is a really interesting episode because in the context of the Marshall Plan in the world, we see a lot of countries and governments stepping in to sort of deal with the crisis of COVID-19 and the economic effects that it's had. The Marshall Plan is sort of, in my view, the first true step that the United States took to sort of assert itself as a global hegemonic power in the aftermath of World War II. In the aftermath of World War II, there was a lot of debate about what role the U.S. should sort of play in global affairs. And I really think that the Marshall Plan, the creation of a lot of Western institutions and alliances such as NATO, the IMF, the WHO, all those sorts of Western-backed institutions that we think of today and really are under attack from a variety of different countries and even the Trump administration, all sort of came in the aftermath of World War II with the goal of sort of building a Western alliance, but also trying to create institutions that sort of keep the peace across the globe. And in terms, this is probably the first episode that we've done from and done an interview with sort of an economist. And I always think it's interesting to look at every single field has a sort of history. Math has a set of history. Physics has history. Economics has history. Politics has history. So being able to kind of get a different perspective on the Marshall Plan in terms of the economic effects and the economic goals is pretty cool because I've always been interested in economics and the Marshall Plan really was an economic one. Obviously, it had political goals, but it really was an economic aid plan to rebuild Europe in the aftermath of World War II. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't necessarily think about is the steps that had to be taken after the war because the United States obviously hadn't gotten bombed or suffered a ton of civilian casualties like Britain had. France had been invaded and occupied for numerous years. Germany, which we fought against, had been bombed. Its cities had been destroyed and a lot of the infrastructure and institutions had been wrecked. A lot of Eastern Europe was occupied by the Soviet Union and pretty much communist governments were put in place. So really trying to rebuild Europe was a daunting challenge, and the Marshall Plan played a critical role in getting Europe back on its feet economically. Obviously, Britain had still wanted to maintain the status quo of being a sort of colonial empire, but it wasn't necessarily in a position to do so. The French also wanted to keep a lot of its colonial possessions, but obviously, in terms of the Marshall Plan in Europe, it played an important role in being able to keep... Europe going, or at least set Europe in the correct direction of trying to rebuild. So that's just some background. I'm sure most people know the Marshall Plan, but we dive into depth about what it did, what its goals were, and what economic impact it had, not just on Europe in the aftermath of war, but even its impact till today. So I hope you enjoy. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Ben Stale, who is the Senior Fellow and Director of International Economics, as well as the Official Historian in Residence of the Council on Foreign Relations in York. He's also the founding editor of International Finance, a scholarly economics journal. He's also the lead writer of the Council's Geographic Economics blog. Some of his work includes The Battle of Bretton Woods and The Marshall Plan, which was the winner of the American Academy of Diplomacy Douglas Dillon Award. So welcome on. 
Thank you for having me, Ryan. And to start off, what is your favorite part of history or economics to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite, and how did you become interested in the Marshall Plan? Well, before I wrote the Marshall Plan, as you mentioned, I had written a book called The Battle of Bretton Woods, which was an historical narrative on the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944 that created the IMF, the World Bank, and the dollar-based international monetary system. And I'm trained formally as an economist, not as an historian, so I had approached the subject as an economist. But I quickly became engrossed in the Cold War aspects of that story. In particular, the episodes surrounding the activities of Harry Dexter White, who was the U.S. Treasury representative leading the American team at Bretton Woods. He was, in fact, a Soviet agent for many years. So in the course of writing that book, I just became utterly fascinated with early Cold War history. The Marshall Plan had played a sort of cameo role in the book late in the sort of epilogue material. And so I decided after Bretton Woods that I wanted to tell the Marshall Plan story, but through a Cold War lens to a degree that hadn't been done in previous works on the Marshall Plan. And that I knew would require access to Russian source material so I could explain the dialectic of the path to the Cold War as the United States and the Soviet Union each began to realize that they would have to pursue their national interests in isolation of the other. That is, that cooperation in the post-war period would no longer be possible. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching this specific history or economics? Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, I had approached Bretton Woods primarily through the lens that the traditional economist would use. So that wasn't a great challenge for me in terms of getting data and understanding how to examine that data. But it was somewhat of a challenge uh, learning how to navigate the various archives that I had to use. There is, of course, a lot of good material that's available online these days, but often the best material is still only in physical form at the, the various archives. And the biggest challenge, certainly in writing the Marshall Plan, was foreign language material. Uh, I was really only competent to translate material directly myself from the French. As I mentioned, Russian source material was incredibly important to that book. Um, so I relied on others, an archival historian in Moscow who sent me back uh, many, many thousands of pages of documents. I had them translated over here. The historian in Moscow gave me critiques of those translations. I discovered early on in writing the book that the story of how Czechoslovakia became part of the Soviet sphere was a fascinating one, very much connected with the Marshall Plan, their desire to participate in the Marshall Plan and Stalin's refusal to allow them to do so. So I had to become familiar with Czech source material. So for one academic term, while I was writing the book, I had a Czech-speaking intern who worked on that material, which proved absolutely invaluable. So I would say that the language barrier was the most important one to surmount. And to kind of get into the start of the Cold War, which is what we'll be talking about today, my first question is, what was the state of Europe in the aftermath of World War II, and what sorts of economic challenges did the continent face? 
Well, of course, you had massive physical devastation across the European continent from the war damage, obviously. But even more important than that, you had massive lawlessness, recriminations, both legal and extra-legal, mass killings of people who had been associated rightly or wrongly with having been on one side or the other. But you also had a massive breakdown in the division of labor, which we take for granted living in a capitalist economy. That is, even in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, you and I probably take it for granted that if we need something to eat, we can leave the house, go to a supermarket. And even if uh, it's not as well stocked as we might like it to be, we have no problem getting our food well, that wasn't the case in Europe after World War II. The division of labor, particularly between the countryside and the cities, had broken down entirely. And the United States became very concerned about this, not just from a humanitarian perspective. Of course, humanitarianism was a big part of this, but from the perspective of fearing that these countries, if they couldn't stop the slide into economic chaos would turn to forms of authoritarianism, either of the right or the left. And of course, in the early post-war period, the concern starts to shift away from Germany and fascism towards the Soviet Union and communism. And did U.S. plans for Europe change as a result of the death of Franklin Roosevelt and the ascension of President Truman, or did the plan sort of actually stay the same? You know, historians have typically drawn a, a stark contrast between the approach of Franklin Roosevelt to the post-war era. His vision was often described as a so-called one-world vision the United States and the Soviet Union would somehow manage to march arm in arm into the post-war era to promote peace and stability and economic order around the world. They contrasted that approach with what became the Truman approach to foreign policy, which was based on a so-called two-world vision, a vision of a world divided between democracy and capitalism on the one hand, led by the United States, and a communist world led by the Soviet Union. But that had never been Truman's intention. Truman had always been determined to follow FDR's vision, not because he himself had strong views about foreign policy, but precisely because he had been so ignorant about the details of foreign policy. FDR had not kept him well informed of his discussions with Stalin, for example. So Truman had been quite determined to achieve a cooperative relationship with uh, Stalin, but that began breaking down entirely over the course of 1946. The United States had uh, hoped that after the Second World War, the Soviets would effectively contain themselves. That is, that Stalin would be satisfied within his newly expanded borders and sphere of influence in uh, Eastern and Central Europe, and that he would not press for new territorial gains. But it became clear over the course of 1946 that that wasn't the case. He began pressing territorial claims against Turkey. 
He refused to withdraw Soviet troops from northern Iran, Soviet troops that had been stationed in Iran under treaty during the Second World War. And he only backed down when Truman sent a large military flotilla to the region. So over the course of 1946, the Truman and his top people at the State Department begin coming to the conclusion that this cooperative vision that Roosevelt had for the post-war era was probably not going to be possible, and the United States would have to secure its vital economic and security interests, particularly in Europe, unilaterally. And would you say that the disagreements over the division of Germany was sort of the start of the Cold War? Germany was definitely the heart of the Cold War. It had not been the intention of either the United States or the Soviet Union to split Germany. Both sides had intended to unify it, but in the course of their long discussions in 1945, 1946, and going into the spring of 1947, it simply proved impossible to reconcile the differences between the two. In March of 1947, Truman's new Secretary of State, George Marshall, goes off to Moscow for his most important diplomatic mission. He spends six weeks in Moscow negotiating with his Soviet counterpart, Vyacheslav Molotov, and then with Stalin over how they might achieve a peace treaty with Germany to allow the country to be reunited and to allow all the occupation forces to be removed. But there were two major issues that divided the U.S. and the Soviet Union. One was a fairly narrow one, still a very important one, and that was that the Soviets were demanding $10 billion in reparations from Western Germany, the part of Germany that the United States controlled. It would be about $110 billion in today's money. General Marshall was adamant that that was not possible, given that Western Germany was being kept alive by the U.S. taxpayer. And so Western Germany paying reparations to Moscow would effectively be the United States paying reparations to Moscow. That was totally unacceptable. But there was a much broader issue that divided the two. And it was an issue which they would never have been able to reconcile over. And that was that neither the United States nor the Soviet Union could afford to have a unified Germany as an ally of the other. Both considered that to be a mortal national security threat. And did the U.S. try different methods outside negotiation to reunify Germany, or did the U.S. eventually accept that reunification would not be possible? After the Marshall's six weeks um, in Europe, he came back to Washington, having determined that Stalin was not just being a difficult negotiating partner, but that he was actually happy to see Western Europe sink into chaos, disorder, and anarchy, and to drag down Western Europe with it, because he felt that would help him seize control of Western Germany and communize it, and that he would be able to use that control eventually to expand his influence elsewhere in Western Europe. Remember, at the time in 1947, the communist parties in France and Italy were extremely powerful. 
They were parts of coalition governments in both countries. So once Marshall comes home, recognizing that Stalin is playing for time, that he doesn't want to take any steps to stabilize Western Germany, he immediately summons George Kennan, one of the greatest Russian experts in the State Department, one of the greatest experts on Russia ever in the State Department, and tells him to go off for two weeks and plan what would be the core of a European recovery plan. And that is the genesis of the Marshall Plan. And was the Soviet Union skeptical of U.S. intentions, both politically and economically, not just in Germany, but in Western Europe and sort of their role in the future of Europe? Absolutely, they were. And they became convinced that the U.S. was going alone and was going to pursue its interest in in Western Europe unilaterally. After Marshall's famous speech at Harvard in June of 1947, later that month, the British, French, and Soviet foreign ministers met in Paris to try to hash out a common European position to frame the Marshall Plan. Marshall said that this initiative must come from Europe itself. But this was actually a kabuki play that was orchestrated entirely by Washington, Paris, and London. They intended to encourage the Soviet foreign minister Molotov to storm out of the conference by their framing of the Marshall Plan. They knew that Stalin could never allow his satellite countries in Eastern Europe to freely participate in such an initiative. And so this played out exactly as General Marshall had hoped. Stalin realized during these discussions in Paris that there were three reasons he was going to have to resist the Marshall Plan. First of all, Yalta in February of 1945 During his discussions with Roosevelt, he was convinced that after the war, the Americans would go home, just as they had after World War I. Now it became clear with the uh, announcement of what was to become the Marshall Plan that the Americans had no intention of going home, that they intended to remain fully engaged economically, politically, and eventually militarily um, in Europe. Second, Stalin's spies in British spies in Washington and London both made clear to him that U.S. occupation policy in Germany, the so-called Morgenthau plan to deindustrialize and dismember Germany, was going to be turned on its head um, and that uh, Western Germany would now be revivified and transformed into the industrial engine of a new integrated democratic capitalist Western Europe, uh, something that Stalin considered to be a mortal security threat. And finally, as I had mentioned earlier, he was deeply concerned that he would no longer be able to keep control of um, his so-called satellite nations in Central and Eastern Europe. And right after the Paris conference, he made clear to all those countries, in particular Czechoslovakia and Poland, both of 
which had wanted desperately to participate, that they would not be allowed to negotiate any terms for participation. Uh, you briefly mentioned George Keenan. Um, did his long telegram sort of reinforce the skepticism and fear of Soviet ambitions in Europe? And did this motivate the United States to secure Western Europe both economically and politically? George Kennan's long telegram in February of 46 from Moscow really did an enormous amount to crystallize uh, a growing perception in Washington that Moscow was inherently a, a, a hostile power with which the United States would never be able to come to any sort of useful terms. Kennan did a marvelous job using his understanding of Russian history and political culture of explaining uh, why such a reconciliation of differences would be impossible uh, between the two sides. To kind of get into some details about the Marshall Plan, um, did the economic relief package for Europe begin to develop immediately after the war or after tensions with the Soviet Union began to rise? Yeah, I wouldn't uh, call it a, a package so much as uh, the kernel of an idea after the Second World War. Over the course of 1945 and 1946, interestingly enough, in the military establishment. Certain key figures, in particular Secretary of War Henry Stimson, Army Secretary Kenneth Royal, Navy Secretary, later Defense Secretary James Forrestal, all started developing ideas revolving around the premise that Western Europe could be revived through massive American economic aid, and that revival would allow their democratic governments to maintain integrity so that um, these people would not turn to communism or other, or other forms of authoritarianism. The reason why they started focusing on uh, economic interventions were twofold. First of all, Roosevelt had pledged openly at the Tehran Allied War Leaders Conference in 1943 to withdraw all American troops from Europe within two years of the end of fighting. And as I mentioned earlier, President Truman was fully determined to carry out Roosevelt's vision. So at the end of the Second World War, there are over three million American troops in Europe, and he begins bringing them home immediately. So the American military establishment understands very well that they have a problem. They're not going to be able to rely on the military to secure American interest in Europe. They're going to have to use more innovative means. And this was really a unique period in history where the United States could afford to experiment with diplomatic interventions because the U.S. was really at the apex of its uh, power. It accounted for about half the world's manufacturing output, and the United States had sole possession of atomic weapons. So it was possible for this brief window of time before the Soviets developed their own atomic weapons, came in 1949, to try to secure American interests using non-military means. If we hadn't had this brief 
window of utter hegemony. It's difficult to imagine that the United States would have taken the sort of risks that it did take in relying on economic intervention. And do you think the sort of conception and implementation of the Marshall Plan contributed to the growing tensions between the U.S. and Soviet Union? Without doubt. I mean, I do believe that the Cold War was inevitable, given those fundamental differences I described earlier between Washington and Moscow over the future of Germany. But it's undoubtedly the case that the Marshall Plan accelerated the division between the two. It's important to recognize that in much of Central and Eastern Europe, in the immediate aftermath of the war, you did have coalition governments of sort with both communist and small d democratic participation. Now, I don't mean to suggest by any stretch of the imagination that these governments were in any way um, free and independent. But Joseph Stalin was not dogmatic about the type of socialism that these companies, the countries decided to implement. He was simply concerned that they would not challenge fundamental Soviet interests. It's only after Marshall's speech in June of 1947 that he starts cracking down on all these countries, pushing out the Democrats from the various coalition governments and securing complete communist control. And one of the most um, important episodes that I describe in my book is in February of 1948, when Stalin instigates a communist coup in Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia had had a legitimate coalition government elected in 1946, with two-thirds of the cabinet ministers, small-D Democrats, Stalin orchestrates a coup, pushes them out, the communists take over entirely. And this had an enormous galvanizing effect on the U.S. Congress. At the time, in early 1948, there was still considerable skepticism about this idea of using massive economic intervention within the Republican Party. But Republicans um, quickly uh, began to coalesce around the notion that the United States had to intervene massively and quickly in Western Europe to prevent Stalin from repeating these tactics further and further west. So it was in April 1948, uh, only a few months after the coup in Prague, that the Marshall Aid legislation was passed. And did the Marshall Plan hope to include Eastern European countries under the influence of the Soviet Union, or was it exclusively for Western European countries friendly with the United States? Yeah, I hinted at this earlier. Marshall was not naive, and he understood fully that the Soviet Union would not cooperate in any sort of uh, legitimate manner in the implementation of of a European recovery plan. And Marshall certainly didn't believe that he would allow countries of Eastern and Central Europe to participate um, uh, freely in, in any way because that would break down their economic and political links with uh, Moscow. But he was determined to make sure that the U.S. would not get blamed for precipitating the Cold War, for erecting an iron curtain across the European continent. So he deliberately made his initiative available to all countries in Europe, the Soviet Union included, knowing perfectly well that over time, 
Stalin would have to come to the conclusion that he needed to oppose it publicly. And Marshall needed Stalin to oppose it in order to ensure that it would get congressional support. And did the plan also have political goals as well as economic ones? Well, I would say that its goals first and foremost were uh, political. Economics was a tool to achieve political aims, and that was to integrate the countries of uh, Western Europe, the countries that Stalin did not already control, to integrate them economically to a limited degree at this point, politically, and as I describe in my book, although this hadn't been Marshall's intention, eventually they became integrated militarily, and that's an important point that I drive home in this story. The U.S. had initially pursued the Marshall Plan as a way to help it to disengage from Europe militarily, but the French and the British in particular made clear to Washington that if they were going to pursue the State Department's integration scheme, this would make them less self-sufficient economically, and it would make it more difficult for them to provide for their own security. For example, the French said, look, you're withdrawing all your troops from Europe. What's going to happen uh, if in five years time, the West Germans cut off our coal supply, or more likely the Soviets who will control Western Germany in four year, five years time, cut off our coal supply. Um, so if we're going to be dependent on Germany, if, if we're supposed to integrate with Western Germany, then you, the United States, will have to provide us with ironclad guarantees. So one year and a day after passage of the Marshall Aid legislation, the NATO Founding Act legislation was passed in uh, Washington. And I argue that without this security component provided by NATO, the Marshall Plan would never have succeeded. And did the Soviet Union attempt to undermine the plan publicly? and privately? Absolutely. They attacked it in public. They attacked it in the United Nations. They attacked it diplomatically, privately, making clear to uh, their satellites in Central Eastern Europe that they could not participate. When the Czechs refused to get the message, as I described earlier, Stalin instigated a coup in the country. So the Marshall Plan really is the central episode that triggers the spiraling Cold War. I describe in my book how uh, the Marshall Plan led to the coup in Prague. It led to the Stalin's blockade of Berlin and led ultimately to the division of of Germany and Europe. And to ask some concluding questions, uh, what were the long-term effects of the Marshall Plan? Well, I mean, it's fascinating to realize today that all of the major institutions that define what we call the world order were created by the United States in just a few short years after World War II. The United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, NATO, the European and the World Trade Organization were all created by the United States between 1945 and 1949. And two of these institutions the EU and NATO almost certainly wouldn't exist today were it not for the Marshall Plan. To give you some perspective on how long-term this 
bipartisan vision was, let me read you this very nice quote from Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. in October 1947. He wrote, quote, the recovery of Western Europe is a 25 to 50 year proposition and the aid which we extend now and in the next three years will in the long future result in our having strong friends abroad, unquote. And we only learned how truly right he was 40 years after Germany was divided, 40 years after 1949 and 1989, the Berlin Wall falls and the alliances uh, such as they were that the Soviet Union created, in particular the Warsaw Pact, crumble immediately, whereas the alliances that the United States forged, in particular NATO and the European Union, became as popular as ever. The newly liberated countries of Eastern and Central Europe, of course, were clamoring to enter both institutions. And that, I think, is the greatest testimony to the vision that underlay the Marshall Plan. And overall, what do you think the legacy of the Marshall Plan is? And what does it kind of tell us about economic aid from a historical perspective? Well, it is, as I say, the Marshall Plan is the foundation of what we call the post-war liberal order, which, of course, is under massive strain today, not least of which because the current U.S. administration is questioning the foundations that the United States put in place in 1947. But this world order, this liberal world order is still an extremely powerful magnet for countries around the world. It's Again, it's testimony to the vision of 1947 that our allies in Western Europe and in Asia, particularly Japan and South Korea, are still so wedded to maintaining these institutions and in trying to keep the United States fully engaged in them. In terms of the lessons of using economic aid, as you probably know, you know, every time there's a massive crisis of any sort around the world, we have calls for a new Marshall Plan. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has given rise to such calls. But I think it's wrong simply to focus on the idea of using massive economic aid in the form of grants to achieve geopolitical goals. In some cases, even though the United States rightly eschewed the use of loans, of debt after World War II to um, aid our allies because of these, the fact that these countries were already massively over-indebted, debt is in fact an important component of the interventions we're using today, particularly in the United States and Europe, to deal with the pandemic crisis. And that is because we we have effectively locked down our economies for a finite period of several months. So by loaning massive amounts of money to companies through initiatives like PPP in the United States, for example, the Paycheck Protection Program, we are able to keep companies alive for this finite period with the prospect that they, most of them, will be able to repay this money as the lockdown is brought to a, a closure. So there are cases in which using loans, using debt is appropriate. But a more important point I would make about use and misuse of the Marshall Plan is to recognize that using economic aid as a reconstruction tool is 
really premised on first being able to provide for internal and external security in the recipient countries. For example, we have in the United States already spent over $210 billion on reconstruction aid alone in Iraq and Afghanistan. To put those numbers into perspective, that is in present dollar terms over 50% more than the totality of Marshall aid. Yet we have almost nothing to show for it geopolitically. And the primary reason is that whereas in the case of the Marshall Plan, we were able to provide internal and external security to the recipient countries, so they were able to revitalize their private sectors and implement cohesive long-term economic restructuring plans in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, that was absolutely impossible. So when people, for example, call for Marshall plans in Syria, they're not reckoning with the fact that we have to find a way to stop the civil war first and to provide this country with basic security before an approach like the Marshall plan could be successful. And my final question is, do you think that we'll need sort of a Marshall-esque plan for both the United States and the world in order to economically recover after COVID? I think enormous sums of money are going to be uh, required in order to ensure that we don't have a massive wave of bankruptcies triggered needlessly by a short-term lack of liquidity. As I say, the um, economic lockdown in the affected countries, as terrible as it is, is finite. We know that we will, over time, be able to lift these lockdowns. And if we can just tide our economies over until the lockdowns can be ended, oh, we will be able to revive employment and growth relatively quickly. So I think it's vitally important that we don't allow what's in effect a temporary liquidity problem to become a long-term solvency and unemployment crisis. Awesome. So that was pretty much everything that I had. So I definitely don't want to take up too much more of your time. Very good. I want to thank you again for doing this. I think my listeners are going to find this is super informative and an important part of history. Thank you, Ryan, and good luck with your podcast. So we just had that interview with Dr. Style. I hope you enjoyed that. I definitely got um, some unique perspective. And I think to analyze, I think it's super interesting to see just not expanding on the Marshall Plan in terms of the Western institutions that were created to sort of develop third world countries as well as aid countries in times of financial crisis. You know, the Marshall Plan was sort of the first, in my view, the first protocol bailout that we kind of see that the United States gave tons of money to European countries to rebuild their economies. And it's interesting to see, for example, during like the 2008 financial crisis, when US government bailed out a lot of the banks that had caused the crisis, as we see today with COVID, the US government has bailed out the airlines industry and has given tons of money and created all sorts of debt in order to try and keep the economy going given that the economy is basically halted. And to kind of understand the economics of it is super interesting because it kind of creates this sense of stability 
And I almost wonder what the long-term effects of all this are going to be, not just on the U.S. economy, but the world economy in terms of globalization, trade, the way that we interact and create supply chains. And even though all of that was sort of under attack even before COVID, I think it's going to take it to a whole nother level. I think that COVID, and as I said, globalization had already been sort of under attack, not just in the US, but in a lot of other countries that have experienced sort of populist, both right-wing and left-wing leaders that have sort of attacked the status quo of this. And I think, at least in the United States, that's been pretty evident under the Trump administration in terms of its attacks on China, against the EU, against all these different countries that you would think we'd have pretty regular relationships with. But, you know, with economics in the Trump era are sort of a zero-sum game in his view. So it'll be interesting to see in terms of even though the U.S. government was already encouraging U.S. companies to sort of try and move supply chains back to the U.S., the disruptions that a lot of countries and a lot of supply chains have experienced, I think, have made a lot of governments sort of rethink and a lot of companies rethink how they manufacture things, how they sell things, how they ship things, all of that, because as we've seen, all of that's sort of been disrupted. And even though all of that is still probably going on, I think a lot of countries are thinking, well, do we really need to have these global supply chains that can be interrupted by, you know, a pandemic that can be interrupted by different conflicts? I think one thing that I think about is climate change, you know, how climate change is going to impact the world economy and these different economies. Is that going to change the way that we think about global supply chains and all of that and globalization? And I think from that perspective, an economic one where countries are like, oh, we need to protect ourselves from these, mitigate the sort of damage that is probably going to come, not just with the pandemic, but also probably climate change with other conflicts. But you need a global solution to solve climate change. And how are you going to do that when countries are more and more sort of moving to insulate themselves from these sorts of events that are inevitably going to impact them? So, I mean, those are some of my thoughts on, you know, in the context of today's era, thinking about the Marshall Plan, how the U.S. sort of stepped in to change and prop up a lot of these countries that have been devastated by the Second World War. And I think it was a super important step that I think a lot of people overlook. So I won't go on too much longer. I hope you enjoyed this interview and episode. I think the Marshall Plan is going to be something that a lot of people refer to when thinking about how the global economy is going to uh, get back up and functioning, hopefully once this pandemic ends. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.